This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9, good morning. You are listening to The Morning Run. It's Wednesday, the 22nd of June, 6 in the morning. I'm Shazana Mokhtar in studio with Wong Xiaoning and Philip C. It just dawned on me, eight days till half of the year. Indeed, we are down to the last week of this, June, essentially. This is Philip C. being the consultant self and turning everything into quarters or months. It has or to like... be. We have to be driven by quantitative targets, Shaoning. Okay, so what is your target that you have achieved? I this, have achieved this, not this... much this year. <laughs> Well, it is a rather wet Wednesday out there. When we were coming into the studio this morning, the rains were torrential. So if you're driving to work today, please drive yes. safely. Uh, stay slow. I think to, if speeding is your is your jab, maybe not today. Just speeding should never be anyone's jab, <laughs> to be honest, unless you're in a race circuit. Unless isn't you're it? on a racetrack. You're right. Wise words from Philip C. today. Uh, but we do have a very interesting show lined up this morning. A lot of uh, interesting discussions beginning at 7.15. We're going to discuss the outlook of the Malaysian property sector in light of rising construction costs and an environment of rising interest rates. What's in store? We have Amy Wong of Knight Frank Malaysia to give us her outlook. I mean, this is a global issue, isn't it, where we're seeing prices rise for the Malaysian property sector. But I wonder uniquely for Malaysia, you know, we've heard this question about the property bubble and the bubble is imminent. It's going to be burst, you know, any moment at this time. I wonder what's the situation there like. I feel like in contrast, though, the Malaysian property market has been pretty sluggish compared to to other global property yes. markets, That's right? right. Very so, much it's, so it's kind of the fact that if it's rising now... But it's, it's, a, it's a supply side issue on construction costs as opposed to the demand side, perhaps? Yeah, there are certain segments of the property sector which are particularly... Oh, there's too much supply. But anyway, at 7.30, we're going to scan the skies for good news in the aviation industry. And Kay Mirza of Modalis Infrastructure Partners is going to give us his outlook on the airlines, especially on the back of this AETA annual meeting yes, in Doha. Yes, in Doha. I think there are a lot of things happening in Doha. And we stay with the theme of planes, trains and automobiles because at 7.45, we will basically discuss the state of our roads and highways with Dr. Farhan Sadullah of University Science Malaysia because so much discussion about the need to maintain our public transport infrastructure across the board. Not only our roads, but also our rail infrastructure as well. So we're going to have all this and more today on The Morning Run. You're going to want to stay with us, BFM 89.9. That was Toto with Rosanna. You are listening to The Morning Run on BFM 89.9608 in the morning. I'm Shazana Mokhtar with Wong Xiaoning and Philip C. Now we're kick-starting our range of conversations this morning with an article from The Atlantic. Uh, the title reads, Anonymity Online is in. Philip, can you walk us through what this article is all about? Yeah, I think it goes to shows that I think the next generation, like the Gen Z, prefer to be anonymous online. And the article points to the fact that there's been a mini renaissance of these older apps like Tumblr, where users rarely use their full names and actually can hide over under different contexts and names. And that's seeing a search because people are just very embarrassed by all these attention-seeking behaviours by all you Gen X and millennial people, you, you know, mean on Instagram, <laughs> on Instagram and Facebook. And such, yeah. So they rather hide... And TikTok. Under, correct. They rather hide under another pretext. So Discord, another app, is also seeing a surge uh, in over a period of time. But actually, in my view, has it always been a Gen Z only thing? We've had Zorro before. We've I, had well, Banksy. I, uh, who's that? Banksy is the artist. Is, is that what you're referring yes. to? But Zorro, that's something new to me. Oh my goodness. <laughs> but isn't every superhero um, like a mystery? So is Batman, right? 
So yeah, I have to say that when I first read the article, it did. I did have a rather curmudgeon reaction to it in the sense that how is it that anonymity is considered new and fresh when people like Banksy have yes. been around forever? He's definitely not Gen Z. We still don't know who he is. Correct. Anonymity like has a, been a white guy who's probably really? my age. I suspect I... living in a very small but town. His identity has been a closely guarded secret, right? So the fact that anonymity in this article is seen as this ooh, this grail for young Gen Zs, it did it did kind of strike me in 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 it struck a, a negative chord in me. But then I sat with my thoughts and, and thought more about it. And the thing with this generation is they are the very first generation that grew up as babies with social media in mm. their lives. Yeah. They have been put on social media from the fact where they, where they couldn't even decide that they wanted to be part of it. Um, you know, they've got baby pictures there, toddler pictures there. They grew up with themselves on the so it's internet. A, it's a counter-response. It is a counter-response. I, I, at least that's the way I see it if they're mm. deciding to turn to anonymity now. But you're right. I think the fact that anonymous platforms, they've always been there. IRC, I don't know if you remember this, but yes, uh, you know, yes. Internet Relay Chat, that was all anonymous. You would know that, Shaoning. I read it, ICQ. No, I'm all the these... lady that remembers jarring, okay, the dialogue. Jarring. Yeah, so that tells you how old I am. Okay, that was my era, yeah. And, we and in the early days of the internet, it was very anonymous, right? Yes. Um, we didn't have even pictures in those days. It was just black and green, you know, the screen literally. It really was just the power of your words. Yeah, and we typed all sorts of stuff on, on chats, but there were no pictures. But now because of the use of Instagram, Facebook. I think there's a lot more revealed in the world because you have pictures. And that's why, actually, even in the corporate world, we ask a lot about our personal brand, how we present ourselves visually, how do we look uh, and feel and, you know, say the words. So I find, and that's a thing driven by social media, very much so about, you know... Um, how do you stand out from the crowd? And mm. I think what you're seeing in this next generation is you don't need to stand out from the crowd just for the sake of standing out from the crowd. You know, through the hidden things you do, that could also be how you stand out, but perhaps no need to be well known for. Indeed. And I think, I guess this generation is also more cognizant of the dangers of Googling, of, of being able to Google yourself or have yeah. other people Google you. So they're also being a lot more careful about what they share on social media, knowing that potential bosses or potential dates can Google your name and see what you've oh, been up yes. to. Oh, I'm uh, a culprit for that, I have to admit. Yes, I, I just need to mention to Philip C, this person applied <laughs> for this job and he will manage to find something from the person's past like 10, 15 years yes. ago for me to watch. And I'm, yeah, it's true. So maybe there is some need to always remain anonymous. The internet remembers. And I think as this generation grows up with social media being so omnipresent, those kinds of rules and those kinds of guidelines, those principles on how you should behave and what you should share, that's going to become more ingrained moving forward. Absolutely. So tell us what you think. You know, Do you think that anonymity is coming back? Uh, is that the trend? And how do you safeguard your uh, social media profiles? Um, how do you safeguard your privacy from people like Philip C who will be looking you up left, oh, right, and center? Oh, don't apply to BFM because we will search <laughs> you down, Google. Don't, please. We are looking for presenters. <laughs> Do send in your CVs, please. You can send those CVs to our Twitter at BFM Radio or WhatsApp us at 018-789-8899. in the morning. We're heading into some messages. And when we come back, we're going to discuss what instant noodles have to do with the global economy. Stay tuned. BFM 89.9. That was Arcade Fire with the Suburbs, a rather superb song, I find. And I do feel that Arcade Fire likes to talk about proper 
property development a lot. Uh, they've got a couple of songs <laughs> about suburban sprawl and urban sprawl. And we're actually going to be talking about property outlook for Malaysia a little later in the show. So stay tuned for that conversation. What an astute observation, I have to say. Indeed, indeed. Always. Always on the BFM, man. Always on BFM, I mean. Anyways, we are taking a look at... Um, Instant noodles right now. And do you guys have a preference for instant noodles that you like? Can Maggie. I just Maggie? Maggie, Maggie for me. Maggie for you, Xiaoning. Do you have any? I like the super hot Korean ones. The super hot the the rum yeah the ramions yeah or of some sort. I'm not fussy about the brand. I just buy whatever's the cheapest because I'm that kind of girl. But I like the Korean. Cheap. Yeah. All right. <laughs> no, I like value, Philip. Not okay. cheap. I'm not you cheap. Just say it. I'm a value. Person. They are totally like big sized portions. I do love. that. I break them in half and eat half. I can't finish a whole packet. Okay. Don't waste. I, on the other hand, I like uh, the homegrown mi sedap. That's my preferred mi goreng, maggi type of noodles. But we are talking instant noodles because instant noodles, uh, particularly Indomie, uh, is being seen as a benchmark for inflation over in Indonesia. That's right. I mean, Indonesian demand for instant noodles has reached 13.27 billion servings in 2021, second only to China. And I think it's a very interesting indicator of cost of living uh, because it's actually available to everybody and it's affordable. It's only about 2,800 rupiah per, per packet, which is about 83 ringgit cents. 83 cents. 83 cents. 83 cents. 83 cents. <laughs> so consider that it's very cheap. And I remember I was going on, I was going on holiday to Thailand and I was talking to a tourist, to, tourist guide as well. And she was going through a very hard time during the pandemic. And how she survived was actually just eating instant noodles. And I, I think what's happening now is that for this generation in Southeast Asia, we are transitioning away from what we consider staples like rice to eating things like noodles. But they are very different, right? Because rice is what is locally produced in mm. the region. But noodles come from wheat and flour, which is actually a global export. And this is where the debate about globalization, about how trade flows, is actually affecting core staples in our country. Yeah, well, it's also driven by the fact that we all lead this like, you know, fast-paced lives, right? And instant That's noodles, right. you can cook it in like less than what, four or five minutes and then you get a hot bowl of noodles with soup like instantly rice takes quite a while to, yes. to prepare so it's it's not an instant not food instant. yeah uh, but when you're talking about food inflation yes wheat is one of those commodities that has been actually really impacted by the war in ukraine because ukraine is actually the breadbasket for europe so if they're not exporting then the rest of the world feels it so even if we just look at bloomberg prices right uh one year ago Wheat was uh, 47% cheaper. Can you imagine? Yeah. So that has translated into the cost of the cost of making that packet of noodles has increased significantly. And it's not just the war in Ukraine. Yeah. This is being compounded by pl- climate change effects and changing weather patterns over in India, yep. which is also a major producer of wheat. They have imposed uh, wheat export bans because they're trying to preserve the wheat stocks for their own nation. Um, so you've got all these compounding factors impacting the very humble instant noodle. And I mean, bringing it closer to home, you know, you Talk about wheat and flour. Just about two, three weeks ago, the Vibes actually came up with a Roti Chanai and Te Tarik index. And Roti Chanai, its core uh, product is wheat and flour as well. Mm. And I think, guys, if you really want to get the cheapest Roti Chanai, you have to go to Jalan Raja Alang at Chow Kit or you have to go to SS15 at Subang Jai at Palita because apparently they just hit one ringgit there. But everything else is going up to two ringgit 50 cents. One ringgit Roti Chanai? Yes. Is, this, is it a very small one? I don't know. <laughs> is it I know, a Chinese? I know you want value. I know you want value. You know, I'm a, you know what I mean? You can keep the prices the same, but what you do is you just make the sizes really small. That's you're like, true. Summer That's hugger. true. And it, is that the trend that we're going to see, right? Are we going to see instant noodles, which... Uh, arguably, the the kind that's produced here, they already tend to be pretty small, small size. Exactly. Are they gonna Are they gonna become even smaller 
for if you know to maintain the margins that producers have at the moment. But this is where I think we have really changed our diets. You know, for the past uh, you know decades, as you said, you know we have really out of time now. We mm. want things fast and instant. So yeah, a roti chanai teh tarik. You know, you just go to a, a, a mamak store, you get it out in ten fifteen minutes. You're out right in thirty minutes essentially. Instant noodles, you just put hot water. You're done with. That's really a sign of the times. If you reflect about you know. A decade ago, we talked about the Big Mac index as a measure of mm. our cost of living and as a sign of how you know we stack up globally versus each other in terms of cost of living. But you hear less about that now, and you see more locally driven indexes, right? Which make more sense because let's face it, um, McDonald's is still a treat. It's not cheap at all, right? If you look yeah. at some of the meals, it ranges from what tw- fourteen ringgit all the to twenty plus. If you include the fries, the drink, and the burger, so if you get fries now, yeah, okay, yes, it's out of stock in Japan. Uh, for large sizes. But the point is, you know, it's not reflective of how people live. So I think these indexes are better indicators. But what is really worrying is that there are pain points globally, right? We see this in Indonesia because, yes, it's only 83 cents our money. But for someone who's maybe not making very much money every day, they really watch their pennies. So every significant increase in what is their daily staples does impact them. As we know, even here in Malaysia, Essentials for the uh, MB40 is 27% of, of their total spend. But for a T20, it's like 12%. You see, so generally the rich can hide, can wait, can kind of endure. They're not even yes. enduring. They're kind of just, okay, these price increases, we can live with it. But as we get, you know, in terms of income gets lower and lower, you really feel it. It really feels. Can I just share with you a personal story? I used to work in the city and, you know, a lot of my colleagues and staff who are actually at the lower rank, you know what they do? They just eat rice with kwa. Yeah. That's all they do. It's really tough. We are very privileged where we sit, where we can have a proper meal with protein and such. Many people struggle just having rice with kwa gravy. It's terrible. Well, tell us what you think. How is inflation affecting your lives? And if you want to share what your favorite in, uh, instant noodle brand is, please do. You can WhatsApp us 018-789-8899 or tweet us at BFM Radio. We're heading into the 6.30 a.m. news bulletin. We're going to be back after that with a look at global headlines. Taking you to the bulletin is the Stranglers are the Stranglers with Always the Sun. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. That was Muse with their cover of Feeling Good. You're listening to The Morning Run. It's 6.45 a.m. on Wednesday, the 22nd of June. I'm Shazana Mokhtar with Wong Xiaoning and Philip C. Now, it's that time of morning where we take a look at what's making headlines around the world. Who'd like to start us off with what's caught their eye? I'll start. Um, Tesla has been banned from Chinese China's Communist Party resort town, according to Reuters, because Tesla cars from July 1st will be barred from entering Bei Dai He, a coastal district east of Beijing that usually hosts the Communist Party's summer retreats, citing a local traffic police official. Why? That's the big question I have. Why are they banning Tesla well, cars? Well, they say the decision is concerns national affairs and that uh, I think presumably has some issues with respect to that they were already banned from military complexes and housing compounds due to the concerns about their cameras collecting sensitive data. Interesting. So does that mean all the people who drive Teslas will have to park outside of the city limits? <laughs> They'll be like a sure. parking lot full of Teslas. And then there are golf carts that bring them into the <laughs> resort, perhaps. Okay. Well, interesting <laughs> stuff. A lot of headlines coming out of Elon Musk's comments. Oh, Shining, yes? Yeah, well, actually, he just did a one-on-one interview um, That's right. with Bloomberg. So I'm going to highlight some of the things he has said. Let's stay on the topic of uh, Mr. Elon Musk. Uh, one of which that he has forecast a probable recession in the U.S., 
Uh, I do believe he has trimmed 3.5% of the workforce. I think that's his intention. Trimmed, going to trim. I think that's the word. Uh, he says in a recession is inevitable at some point. Okay, that's his point. That's what he said. And uh, he's also cast doubts on whether he really, really, really wants to buy Twitter. Remember, he fought so hard for it in April. And now he says there are a few unresolved matters and he's still waiting for a resolution on how many bots, which are those automated accounts, rather than humans that are on the social media platform. So a transaction can't be completed till that issue is cleared up according to him. But the thing with Elon Musk being such a contradiction, he's sort of casting doubt on the deal on one end. But on the other end, in the same interview, he is talking about all the plans that he has for Twitter. The fact that he wants to get half of the world to be using Twitter. Um, you know, so he's got these huge ambitions that he's outlining. But at the same time, he's going like, eh, but maybe it won't happen. So, so this is the contrast because the Bloomberg interview is interesting where he talks about Twitter, about giving free speech. At the same time, he wants to get into China. And then that's where the tension is, isn't it? Because in China, perhaps it's a bit of question about how very much they, they, they do support free speech. So the tension really is very clear there with respect to his investment in Twitter versus what Tesla wants to do with his expansion plan. I mean, ultimately, can he have all Both. of the cake, right? Yes, Because that's kind of what he's trying to do. But you know, is that realistic in this very polarized world that we live in? So a lot of, uh, I think people will, will be following him, of course. He's taken a turn in his politics, signing up as Republican, or at least saying that he's going to vote Republican in the next round, um, and really putting himself... Uh, on the opposite side of uh, President Joe Biden, who, on the other hand, is trying to assuage the public that, hey, a recession is not yeah. inevitable. Um, so these two narratives, which, one's gonna, which one is going to play out in the public and in markets as we move forward? I think markets already decided. <laughs> it's a recession, guys. Let's look at the Nasdaq down 30%, S&P 500 down 21%, Dow Jones down 15%. This all on a year-to-date basis. You just have to look at where bond yields are going, right, to get an indication of how nervous markets are. Bond yields for 10-year, 3.274%. These are all indicators that the markets think is recession. And we've had inverted yield curves on the short end more than once. So it's I think it's more messaging more than anything else because midterm elections are coming up very soon, right? Uh, but the latest thing in the U.S. is this congressional Democrat conversation that Biden is having to resurrect that bill back better. You know, like the whole infrastructure mm. super bill that he was trying to push ahead and limit inflation as a result of it. I don't know. That's also, to me, a lot of political talk. But this is about the communication side. And you, you talk about recession. Uh, and this is where even in England, in UK, sorry, the Bank of England chief economist says that he'd rather sacrifice growth to cut inflation. So I think that's also the tone you had hearing a lot as well, right? Even Chair, uh, Fed Chair Powell has mm. even said he really doesn't really think too much about what markets think yes. about yes. Uh, and really focus more about inflation. Because inflation, if you ask me, is the wild beast in the forest, okay? If you don't tame it before it gets too big or too wild, you cannot bring it back. Look at everyone's comments last year, right? Inflation is transitory. It's not going to be a problem. And that messaging continued throughout the whole year. And we saw inflation generally okay. It was like 2-3% and the US CPI was manageable. And before we knew it, blink, 9% was the norm, 8.6%. So inflation is one of those things that just run away from you. So you need to decide, okay, this is more important. Manage it because if I don't, I'll get stagflation, which is even more painful. Yeah, more painful for sure. And that's why even Steve Mnuchin, the former Treasury Secretary, has even accused uh, Fair Chet Powell that he was very too slow to react. But perhaps hindsight is twenty twenty. Of years, course. I would say so. I mean, Trump was the main cheerleader of stocks when he was president. He saw stocks as a barometer of the economy. Um, so I don't know. 
I, I'm saying it's easy to talk when you're on the other side. In any case, it is 6.44 in the morning. We're coming up to 6.45. We're heading into some messages. And when we come back, we'll take a look at what's making headlines in our local newspapers and portals. So stay with us, BFM 89.9. That was Shade with Paradise. You're listening to The Morning Run. I'm Shazana with Xiaoning and Philip. 6.49 in the morning on Wednesday, the 22nd of June. We're taking a look at what's making the front pages of our local newspapers and online portals. Uh, who would like to start? I'll start, I think. I think the big news that came out overnight from Putrajaya is that the government has announced the removal of the ceiling price for chicken and chicken eggs, as well as subsidies for cooking oil in bottles of 2kg, 3kg, and 5kg effective July 1st. Now, this means that the subsidy for cooking oil in 1kg polybag packages, which is sold at 2 ringgit 50 per packet, is not affected. That's right. So there is still subsidized cooking oil for the, for that packaged oil, but yeah. otherwise it's going to be lifted. Uh, chicken prices are also going to be lifted as of 1st of July. It's going to be floated, so it'll be based on free markets, although the government has said that needy groups will be assisted later with targeted financial aid. So we'll still have to wait for details on how this financial aid is going to be dispersed. To give you a stand, sense, right, with respect to chicken, the ceiling price for standard chicken is about 8 ringgit 90 cents in Peninsula, Malaysia. But with this removal, it's expected to now hover between 10 to 12 ringgit per kg. And this was something that um, producers, poultry producers, had been calling for because with the ceiling price, it had been cost prohibitive for them. Mm. It was loss making. Some of them were actually saying, you know, they're going to give up because they just really can't, uh, you know, they can't manage anymore with feed costs so high. And that did lead to the government imposing uh, export bans on live chickens. So maybe we'll see the rolling back of all this uh, moving forward in a faster way as well. But this is also the issue about cooking oil as well. Currently, the government is subsidizing about 6 ringgit per kg. And the current price is now 8 ringgit 50 cents per kg. It goes to show how much subsidy is being provided for cooking oil as well. I'm just going to be really curious in terms of how this is going to impact inflation, right? Because these items are in Mm. our basket. So what does this then mean? So just living, the, the cost of living is going to rise incredibly. I mean, there was an interesting article in the Financial Times talking about why inflation isn't as big a concern in the Southeast Asian region as in other places. And I think the fi- price controls that certain countries have is a big factor in keeping inflation levels low. So as of these price controls are lifted or, or loosened, um, we will see inflation mm. start to go up. So I want to remind everybody in some way that poultry, chicken, is actually a global global prices, you know, as yeah. much as there's a domestic price. So Malaysia, like you say, Philip, eight ninety. In Thailand, one kg, eleven ringgit and thirty cents. Indonesia, similar, eleven ringgit. Singapore, of course, much higher at twenty eight ringgit and ninety cents. Philippines is fourteen ringgit. Vietnam is eleven ringgit also. So I assume everyone is veering towards the eleven, the 11 ringgit. ringgit. So that's the true cost. That's right. Or the true prices that if uh, we didn't have any subsidies, this would be the, the price of chicken. Not th- subsidies, but price controls. I think we will. Me. I think when it hits twelve ringgit fifty cents, it goes to show distribution in inefficiencies there. That's yeah. the question. Okay, so staying on the topic of well, something that affects us all, at least if you're a member, is EPF. So EPF basically announced their first quarter numbers, and uh, the star. Reported, it's off to a bad start, partially because investment income tumbled by nearly 18% year on year in the first quarter of this year. And I think we all know why. Just look at the global stock market. It's, there's been a bloodbath, right, as a result of the Ukraine war, uh, the Fed rate hikes. Uh, now, I think nervousness over inflation, global slowdown. So they've, uh, the question is, what's it going to be like for the rest of the year? Because last year, EPF did announce a dividend payout of 6.1% for conventional savings, which is 
pretty much admirable. And to give you a sense of the the tough times that EPF is facing, they have undertaken a write down of almost one point zero nine billion in the first quarter for listed equities, almost equivalent to the write down of one point one five billion done for the whole of last year. Now, if you break down actually EPF's uh, portfolio, two-thirds is on equities and one-third is on actually on fixed income, right? Malaysian government securities, loans and bonds. So presumably the fixed income part, I think, delivered that steady return. That's why you're seeing that 18% decline versus what you see globally, right, with the S&P 500 and all that really dropping like 30 40%. So I guess this 18% shining probably sits in line with what you're seeing mm. globally with in view of the portfolio that EPF is have experiencing at the moment. Yeah, so overall investments in EPF are $1.02 Okay, of which thirty-seven percent was invested in overseas, in um, uh, sorry, in overseas investments, and that overseas investments actually represented fifty-two percent of the total gross investment mm. income recorded. So as we see the gyration in global markets, that's why you're seeing the decline in investment income. Now, equities, Philip contributed. 66% of EPF's total gross right. investment income. So you're, as long as global markets are going to be like what they are, and even Malaysian market on a year-to-date basis, we're still down 7%. So trying to find any place, any safe haven, any way to get any positive returns is going to be a challenge. But maybe the little bit of bright spot is the fixed income market because yields have actually increased at this moment. But prices are down as a result. Exactly. But I wonder now, you know, as we've seen actually the past few weeks, I wonder if China is becoming an increasingly interesting safe haven as well. Yeah, for sure. I mean, CSI 300 up 6% on the year to uh, month month basis. It's the bright spot. But if we look longer in, in terms of the whole year, it's still a negative territory. But bear in mind, EPF is a, a long-term yes. investor. They have a strategic asset allocation, which they keep to. They don't change it, you know, uh, yep. suddenly. So I don't think, yeah, they see China doing well, but you're not going to see like sh- sudden shifts of movements or fund inflows into China. So you China. shouldn't pull out, right? You should basically hold the costs in it, Shawnee. Yeah, typically fund managers do. You buy quality and then you do dollar cost averaging. All right, 6.55 in the morning. We're heading into some messages and after that, the 7 a.m. news bulletin. We'll come back with a look at how, with more discussion on global markets and how they closed overnight. Taking you to the news is Aerosmith with Sweet Emotion, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.